Hey everyone, Jim Thompson here. Welcome to the Jesus on Display podcast. Before we begin today's content, I wanted to say thank you so much to everybody for supporting us here at Fellowship Greenville with your gifts and your generosity. Because of your giving, we get to share resources like this podcast with you to help reach you wherever you are in your life with Jesus. If you'd like to support the ministry of Fellowship Greenville, you can head to fellowshipgreenville.org forward slash give to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, here's the game plan. We're gonna do three things that obedience doesn't include. We're gonna do two things that obedience must include. And then we're gonna do one foundation from which we should obey. Because if we're asking questions about what constitutes true obedience and how it works in this passage, we can find those things. Three things that obedience doesn't include, two things that obedience must include, and one foundation from which we should obey. And to ease us into these, I want to address a couple of hurdles in this passage. Uh, First, uh, we're not hiding anything, the violence here. Um, For me, it's a lot, it's uncomfortable. Like whether you're going with the the total destruction thing in verse three, or you're going with Agag's death in verse 33, this is so, so weighty. So a few things about this. First, the Amalekites were ancient Near Eastern land pirates. They just would go, they were like nomadic terrorists. They would just go and uh, rape and kill and pillage and steal and ravage other groups. And so there is a sense in which this is a kind of justice. And our lives today are often so sterile and sanitized that this still kind of makes us pick our shoulders up and wince just a little bit. It bothers us. But then you have the fact that God sanctions this somehow, which is another layer of of fragility, no matter your theology. And furthermore, if you do go read other ancient Near Eastern literature, this is just how they wrote about militaristic stuff, about war. They just used language of utterly destroy and total destruction. That's just how you wrote about war back in the day. It was kind of an idiomatic way that you did it 3,000 years ago. And that might ease some of the heaviness of this, but still the violence in certain places in the Hebrew Bible can be very alarming. And that's the first hurdle, if you will, the violence thing. Now, there's one more hurdle, and that is that somebody, hey, somebody, if you read this passage, somebody might even be able to accuse God of being like wishy-washy or oblivious here. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. I regret that I made Saul king. Not a good look, Lord. Now look down at verse 35. Look, and Yahweh regretted that he made Saul king. What in Moses? What does that mean? Like I see up there going, dadgummit. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes in the Bible you have things on the end and then there's something in the middle that kind of echoes the thing on the end that helps explain everything. Look at verse 29. Tucked in the middle of these things, there's another little regret picture. This is about Yahweh. The glory of Israel does not lie or have regret. He doesn't. He's not a person. He's not a man. We regret. We're wishy-washy. But Yahweh doesn't do that. Uh, question? Right? Doesn't that feel a little odd? Now, this word regret in verses 11, 29, and 35 is the Hebrew word nacham. It's a word about God's emotional presence and involvement and engagement with his people. Meaning, here's what it means. God feels the ache of Saul's disobedience. However, look at 29. He's not caught off guard. 
He's not like, whoa, he's not surprised. He's still the unregretting sovereign one if you look at the verse, verse 29. We're the wishy-washy and fickle ones, and he's not like us at all. Now, I know that might be difficult, and some theologians labor hard to, to use language to talk about this. They say things like this, and I think this is helpful. God is unchanging in his being and his attributes and his perfections and in his purposes. However, God also engages with and responds to his world, and he engages and responds differently in response to different circumstances. Now, that might help some of you. Some of you might still have questions. That's okay, um, because this is taking us to our first Big point. There are three things that obedience doesn't include, and the first one is that you don't have to understand everything before you obey, <clears throat> right? Whether it's the violence thing or the regret thing, if you have questions about that, that's fine. You don't have to grasp it all before you obey. So here's the first one. <clears throat> Complete understanding isn't a prerequisite for true obedience. Complete understanding isn't a prerequisite for true obedience. And depending on your personality, that might either like set you free or bother you. But I'm just telling you that that's the case. And as readers of this text, we don't have to dot all our I's and cross all our T's before we trust God and act. We have to learn from Saul's mistake here. But so many of us think that we can hold God captive until he explains himself. And after he explains everything to us in a way that we can totally understand on the first take, and he better not repeat himself, when he can explain himself clearly, then we'll do what he asks. And that's how we operate sometimes. We think we can hold God captive. And guess what? Isaiah 55, his ways are above our ways. You're never fully gonna understand it. And guess what else? Your eight-year-old might be smart, but they can't fully understand that behind the obedience you're asking for lies layers of motives about protection and character development and perseverance. So how much more is this gonna be the case with our good and heavenly father, right? In fact, <clears throat> this is scary. When you lack understanding might be the time that you most need to step out in faith and obey when you can't quite put the pieces together and your brow is still furrowed and you're like, but God, I don't under, that might be the time where you get up off your butt in Jesus' name and go, I'm gonna do it anyway, Lord. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna obey, even though I don't totally get it. And again, I'm not saying the hurdles in this passage are easy and I'm not saying the hurdles in your life are easy. Here's what I'm saying. Please get it. Yo, there's always gonna be hurdles. But I'm also saying God will always be good and sovereign and near to us in the middle of them. And it is, it's a fool's errand to demand complete understanding before we obey. That's what I'm saying. All right, <clears throat> that's the first one. We're doing three things that obedience doesn't include. That's the first one. And the second one is blaming others isn't a part of true obedience. <clears throat> blaming others isn't a part of true obedience. And let me show you uh, where I get this. Uh, yes, this passage has some confusing stuff, but I also think, and I hope you're excited about this, <clears throat> that this is one of the funniest scenes in the whole Bible. Please use your imagination. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> verse 13, Samuel approaches Saul, but Saul says to Samuel, think about that. If somebody walks up to you, you lift your brow and you go, like, what are you gonna say? But Samuel approaches Saul and Saul goes, hey man, what's up? Like he's trying to control the narrative. So Saul starts with, hey, but... Bless God, Brother Samuel, have you lost weight? I totally obeyed, which that, <clears throat> that in itself is hysterical. He's supposed to get rid of all the sheep and all the cows. And so <clears throat> verse 13, this is what happens. Samuel walks to Saul. Saul says, 
Bless God, Brother Samuel. I just obeyed so hard. Bah! That's, <laughs> that's exactly, and so I was like, he kicks a sheep. Like, that's what he does. This is, this is exactly what happens. Look at the next verse. Look, I, I wish I could have seen Samuel's face. Look at verse 14. He goes, what then is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Right? He's like, bro, stop. Like, this is a hysterical scene. And then look at what, look at what Saul does in verse 15. <clears throat> Follow the pronouns. Saul says in verse 15, they have brought them from the Amalekites to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God. And in psychology, that's called distancing language. When he's caught red-handed, <clears throat> Saul puts it on other people. And that's why blaming other people can't be a part of true obedience. Because when you blame somebody, what you're doing is you're trying to duck and dodge responsibility. But blame over promises and under delivers. It thinks, it makes you think that you're gonna get away scot-free. But I tell you right now, blame cannot lead you to life change. Like if you want happiness or peace in your life, it can't happen while blame is in your heart and in your mouth. It can't. And if you want to move forward in your relationship with God in faithfulness and obedience, it will not happen when blame is filling your soul, mind, and mouth. It's not a possibility. In terms of responding to God, faithfulness is health and strength, but blame is like an undiagnosed cancer that will undo you from the inside. And so blame can't be a part of true obedience. All right, next, and really briefly, Partial obedience is actually disobedience. Partial obedience is actually disobedience. Verse 19, <clears throat> look at verse 19. Samuel says, why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? <clears throat> verse 20, Saul said, I did obey the voice of Yahweh. Now notice, <clears throat> in Saul's heart, blame is making him reinterpret reality. He can't see what's actually true because he's blaming people. And that's terrifying. Like he actually did 95% of the job we devoted to destruction, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's close enough, right? Like that's enough. But not only does blame convince us into self-justification, but percentage obedience does the exact same thing. We do enough to feel good about ourselves and then we just kind of carry on. And Samuel says that's actually disobedience. From chapter 13, a few weeks ago, Charlie said the following, <clears throat> do you ever find yourself ignoring what God clearly says and simultaneously asking God for help? And chapter 15's version of that is this. Do you ever find yourself obeying part of what God clearly says and then simultaneously thinking you're helping God out? That's a scary place to be. Again, partial obedience is actually disobedience. <clears throat> All right. That's three things that obedience doesn't include. Now let's do two things that obedience must include. Now look, the first one here, look at verse 22. It's, it's a few times, it's mentioned a few times. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying his voice? <clears throat> so here it is. Biblical obedience begins with hearing the voice of the Lord. Biblical obedience, true, right, real, faithful, biblical obedience begins with hearing the voice of the Lord. And this is the first thing, the first step of true obedience. Now, because I grew up Baptist, the language of the voice of, of, the, voice of the Lord kind of stuff, it used to make me kind of nervous. But this passage right here, this is about what God has clearly revealed and said and spoken. 
And hearing God's voice is not about getting an an audible call from him every Sunday. That's not the deal. It's about listening to his voice in creation, in other godly people, in corporate worship, in art, in solitude, and in prayer. And ultimately, it's about hearing and knowing God's voice as he speaks to us in Holy Scripture. In his word, he has spoken to us with crystal clarity. So much so that the pinnacle of the written word of God is the incarnate word of God, Jesus himself, who has come to rescue us. He he is God's voice with skin on. John says he's the word made flesh. And when we pay close attention to Jesus, we hear God's voice with absolutely zero static. Now, this is fun back in 1 Samuel. The Hebrew word for obey in 1 Samuel 15 is the word shema, which is also the word for hear, like what your kids don't do when you ask them to do something. It's the first word in the morning and evening prayer of every single Jew from Deuteronomy 6. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, he is the one. And that word, Shema, is used eight times in this passage. In fact, look at verse one. It's the first line in the text. Look at verse one, the last line of it. Now, therefore, listen Hear, heed, obey, shema, listen to the words of Yahweh. And then that same word is used in verse 19, 20, and 22, and it's translated, obey the voice of the Lord. Meaning, obeying begins with hearing. But there's also, right underneath this, like there's, there's a subpoint tucked underneath this if you look in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Samuel said, excuse me, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh in your words because, look, I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. And that means that hearing God's voice will quite often mean plugging your ears to the, voice, to the voices of others. Now, please hear me, <clears throat> pun intended. I'm not talking about being a good listener to people in your life. Not what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I'm not talking about how God can speak through other people. It's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about Saul's problem here. He had a people-pleasing idolatry problem and he just wanted to make everybody feel happy, make everybody love him, make everybody be okay. He just wanted to please everybody all the time. And so other people's voices took preeminence over God's. However, it is God's voice and God's word and his truth and his standards that should govern our lives. What God says is most important and not breaking our backs to win some completely lame popular opinion poll comprised of people just like us. That's the dumbest thing ever. Obedience does not start with me, doesn't start with you, doesn't start with other people. Obedience starts with God. And if you look at Saul here and you go, dude, just get your stuff together, just obey. Think back again how hard it is for your kids just to hear you sometimes. And that's why you have to repeat it. And now think about how gracious and patient our good and heavenly father is. And that should make you Take a deep breath, and it should remind you that obedience begins with hearing his voice. Now, closely related to this, the second point here, this is like sequel to the first point, is is this. True obedience moves from a listening, trusting heart to faithful, sacrificial action. True obedience moves from a listening, trusting heart to faithful, sacrificial action. And each piece of this matters. This is worded in a very specific way. True obedience moves from a listening, trusting heart to faithful, sacrificial action. And here's where I get this. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, Samuel is actually doing a nice pastor move here, Pastor Samuel. He's asking a trick question. Look, Saul, 
Does Yahweh have greater delight in offerings and sacrifices or in obedience? This is the curveball. <clears throat> to sacrifice to God in the Old Testament was to obey him. So the answer is yeah. But, but, but <clears throat> Saul's sacrifices were not made from a hearing, listening, and trusting heart. So they weren't real obedience after all. Samuel knows that true obedience is gonna cost you something and that there will be sacrifice involved. But it has to be, quote unquote, faithful, meaning it has to be consistent with a heart that is trusting the Lord and hears what he's asking. This is not just cleaning the floor. It's not just cleaning under the bed. It's knowing that your father asked you to do so for good purposes and you obey him because you love him and not to avoid any possible frustration of his. The kind of obedience that the Bible invites us into is not demanding, threatening legalism. Because it's supposed to begin with listening and trusting, it can be what French philosopher Simone Weil called the infinite sweetness of obedience, which I love. And unlike Saul, there can actually be a glorious beauty to obedience if it begins with a hearing heart and if it begins with faith. And that's the thing that scripture invites us into. And it's an invitation into intimacy with God and his people and his purposes. The Jesus on Display podcast is produced right here at Fellowship Greenville in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks so much again for listening to today's episode. Follow and share this podcast with anybody who might be interested or curious about our church community or how storytelling unites us and helps us feel more connected. To actively keep up with what's going on at our church, head to our website at fellowshipgreenville.org. Follow us on all social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thank you again so much for tuning in. Grace and peace for your week. We'll see you next time.